0: Good evening. The Senate votes down a commission to look into the January 6th riots at the United States Capitol while Senator Chuck Schumer lays out an ambitious uh, plan for this summer to pass some major legislation. Uh, We talk about what it means to be a Christian nationalist. And in New York... We talked to members of the group Magic about the city council's vote yesterday to upzone Governor's Island. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Friday, May 28th, 2021. It was a victory for President Donald Trump.
1: On this vote, the yeas are 54, the nays are 35, three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn not having voted in the affirmative. The motion is not agreed to.
0: Republicans in the United States Senate on Friday, that's today, derailed a bipartisan inquiry into the deadly assault on the United States Capitol by Trump's supporters. Democrats and some moderate Republicans had called for a commission to probe the events surrounding the January 6th invasion. The measure mustered a 54 to 35 vote, which fell short of the 60 votes needed to advance the legislation in the 100 member Senate. The 35 no votes were all Republicans. Six Republicans voted in favor of the commission. The January 6th attempted insurrection delayed certification of President Joe Biden's election victory. Hundreds of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol fighting with police and threatened lawmakers, leaving five people dead, including a Capitol police officer. The proposed commission would have had the power to force witnesses, possibly including Trump, to testify under oath about what happened that day. After the vote, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said Senate Republicans chose to defend the big lie because they feared that anything that might upset Donald Trump could hurt them politically. Schumer then laid out his wish list for the upcoming legislative session, hinting he'd use his power in the future to force votes when necessary.
2: We will not wait for months and months to pass meaningful legislation that delivers real results for the American people. So looking ahead, when the Senate reconvenes on June 7th, Will force a vote on H.R. seven. That's called the Paycheck Fairness Act. It's equal pay for women. It previously was filibustered by Senate Republicans during President Obama's second term. I have promised it will receive a vote in the Senate, and in a couple of weeks it will. I may also ask the Senate to consider gun legislation and L.B.G.T.Q. equality legislation. The Senate will vote on S. one, the For the People Act legislation, vital, vital to defending our democracy, reducing the influence of dark money, that pernicious influence of powerful special interests, and stopping the wave of Republican voter suppression. In addition, the Senate Democratic majority will continue to make progress on President Biden's Build Back Better Economic Agenda. So as the President continues to discuss infrastructure legislation with Senate Republicans, our committees are going to hold hearings and continue their work Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer.
0: Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell has argued that a commission would have duplicated work done by other congressional committees, as well as a sweeping federal criminal investigation that so far resulted in the arrest of more than 440 people. But Republicans are also concerned a commission would focus attention on the violence and on Trump's persistently false claims about the 2020 election well into next year's midterm congressional election campaigns. And meanwhile, authors, uh, pardon me, lawyers for the Oath Keepers urged a federal judge Wednesday to toss out a lawsuit accusing the group, former President Donald Trump, lawyer Rudolph Giuliani and another far far right organization, the Proud Boys, of inciting the January 6th storming of the Capitol, calling its actions a form of peaceful political protest protected by the first amendment attorneys for trump and giuliani also filed motions asking the case to be dismissed with the former president repeating the argument he's immune from lawsuits over actions he took in office the oath keeper said it was conclus- conclusory and speculative to assert that its members planned anything other than to attend a speech of the president at the ellipse near the white house that day another suit was filed by california democratic representative eric swalwell The suits were filed under the Ku Klux Klan Act, a 1871 law enacted after the Civil War to bar violent interference in Congress's constitutional duties. It was brought by 11 House lawmakers led by Homeland Security Committee Chairman Benny Thompson, a Democrat of Mississippi. They're being represented by the NAACP. The Oath Keepers, a loose network of groups, including some self-proclaimed citizen militias, mostly believes the federal government is conspiring to strip Americans of their rights. Fifteen alleged Oath Keepers have been charged in the Capitol riots. As the nation grapples with the worst insurrection against the government since the Civil War, some are asking why so many conservative Christians continue to support Donald Trump, advocating so vehemently for xenophobic policies like the border wall with Mexico. In their book, Taking America Back for God, authors Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry point to Christian nationalism, the belief the United States is and should be a Christian nation, and and uh, that believes that they must preserve a particular kind of social order where everyone – Christians and non-Christians, native-born and immigrants, whites and minorities, men and women – recognize their proper place in society. Author Andrew Whitehead is an associate professor of sociology and religion
3: at Indiana University. Trump was running for president and then throughout his administration, we continually heard rhetoric from him and people speaking for him about how he would protect Christianity and make sure that we make America great again and, and keep it Christian. And another example is we can say Merry Christmas again. These promises really appealed to the vast number of Americans who embrace Christian nationalism. And so for them, it's less about whether Trump is a moral upstanding Christian and more about will he privilege Christianity and give it power in our society. And he was committed to doing that for them. And so for them, it was all about access to power and privilege. Where is the roots of this Christian nationalism? We find that Americans are all across the spectrum. Some embrace it more, some embrace it a little less, and others reject it. And we find that about 20% of Americans uh, strongly embrace Christian nationalism, and another 30% or so are at least friendly with it. Around half of Americans are, to some extent, supportive of Christianity being privileged in the public sphere in the U.S., Well, how did we get here? Christian nationalism and this narrative of the U.S. as a Christian nation or blessed by God or plays a special role, right, in world history in God's eyes, that is a narrative that has been with us, the earliest colonists from Europe coming over. Many of them supported their vision for what they were going to do with this idea that there was something special about the U.S. and that Christianity plays a key role in our national identity. And what we see today really is an extension of the rise of the religious right or the moral majority in the 70s, and they were responding to the cultural upheaval of the 60s with the civil rights movement and gender and sexual revolution. Christian nationalism has been a part of the American body politic for um, really centuries, and it's a narrative and a framework that really appeals to many Americans and really crops up in times of upheaval. So whenever people are searching for who are we, they really quickly will turn to this idea that well we're a Christian nation favored by God and use that to their advantage to have a particular say of of what the US should look like. This doesn't apply to all Christians. No, it doesn't. And that's a key point in our book and that we want to make is that there is a significant minority that reject it. So about twenty percent resist or reject Christian nationalism. And a lot of times it isn't if a person is personally religious, it's whether they embrace Christian nationalism. They may tend church a lot but if they reject Christian nationalism, they look completely different from fellow Christians who embrace Christian nationalism. What did you see happen on January 6th? Does this is relate to what you're talking about here? For most Americans, it was very shocking to see what was taking place in the insurrection. But with what we knew and have been studying with Christian nationalism, it wasn't surprising. Support for Trump, conspiratorial thinking, an embrace of violence to achieve a particular end. Really at the heart of it, Christian nationalism is about power and access to power, and so for those individuals that were there, when we see the Jesus save signs, or they're praying on the Senate floor, their view for the outcome of the election, or keeping Trump in power, or their view of what the United States is all about, they believe is legitimated by the Christian God. Anything that stands in their way, ultimately, they feel um, should be pushed away to achieve the end that God wants, even if it is democracy. Christian nationalism has been with us for decades and really centuries, and so it's not going anywhere. Continuing to educate and know what it is and and to see it being used by people in power I think is important. Andrew Whitehead is an
0: associate professor of sociology and religion at Indiana University. He's co-author of Taking America Back for God, Oxford University Press. And from a revolutionary Marxist perspective, the uprising of the Capitol had little to do with legitimate demands, but was the leading edge of an attempted coup of the fascist variety. And revolutionary communist spokesperson Carl Dix says it's fitting this weekend marks 100 years since the bloody massacre of hundreds of blacks in Tulsa, Oklahoma, by a white mob, a subject he'll be discussing at his group's bookstore in Harlem.
4: Tuesday, June 1st at 7 p.m., at Revolution Books here in New York City, up in Harlem, at uh, 132nd and Malcolm X Boulevard. I'm going to be talking on 100 years since the Tulsa Massacre. These racist horrors must end. Get organized now for a real revolution. And I'm going to get into why these horrors happen again and again and again and what can and must be done to stop them once and for all. It will be 100 years to the day since the Tulsa massacre, and it's also one year since the police murder of George Floyd. We're being told that the conviction of Derek Chauvin represents turning of the corner around these horrors, but as we hear that this killer cop is going to jail, we find out about past instances of police murder, police terror, that went unpunished. We see more murders going down. We see attacks on voting rights of black people and much more. It raises the question of, can this system end these horrors and will it? It will not and it cannot. We have to talk about what's needed And we're going to get into that and talk about how people can connect with the real revolution.
0: How is that different from what happened on January 6th? They're having uh, thousands of citizens came and they they didn't wait for the police to act and they went into the Capitol. Why isn't that a revolution?
4: That was uh, an attempted fascist coup. And the revolution that we're talking about is the opposite of that. Because that was people mobilized, organized and given marching orders by the fascist-in-chief, the former President Donald Trump, who was acting in service to an agenda of accelerating intensely all of the horrors the system brings down, overturning the democratic norms on which the country is operated, and bringing into being a fascist regime to get rid of this system by overthrowing it and bringing a totally different and far better system into being we've got the leadership for that we have the new constitution for a socialist republic in north america that he's authored that's a blueprint for what this new society could be like
0: would the socialist revolution look somewhat like in the sense of uh, january 6th in the sense of uh, thousands of communists left-wingers people who want to change would uh, seize the capital what
4: an actual revolution would look like is millions of people rising up to meet and defeat the institutions of violent suppression of this system and going on to build a totally different and far better system in its place this system is vulnerable in a way that it usually isn't and that makes revolution which is not possible all the time in advanced developed countries like the united states something that the situation for it could come into being in the not too distant future
0: and that's the revolutionary communist spokesperson carl dix you're listening to the news on wbai new york i'm paul durianso more women in the United States die of pregnancy-related complications than in any other developed country, and the number of maternal deaths has been increasing. Each year, Seven to 900 American women die, and approximately 65,000 suffer potentially mortal complications for pregnancy or childbirth-related causes. Additionally, data shows that health inequities significantly impact pregnancy outcomes. Linda Perry reports this is a particularly pronounced This is particularly pronounced in New York City, where the city council is addressing the problem.
5: New York City Council member Vanessa Gibson from the Bronx is bringing attention to a long-overlooked tragedy among black and brown families in New York City, the increasing mortality rate for birthing mothers in underserved communities. According to the CDC, black women in the U.S. are three to four times more likely to die from complications related to pregnancy than white women. In particular, in New York City and New York State, we have the highest rates of maternal deaths in the country. In the city, black women die at a rate of 8 to 12 times more frequently than white women. Data and studies show that one possible solution to address maternal mortality is through the use of midwives. However, information about midwives can be difficult to find. Bronx Council member Vanessa Gibson is co-chair of the City Council's Women's Caucus. Her bill, signed by the City Council into law this week, requires the Department of health and mental hygiene to post information about licensed midwives
6: and in my own borough of the bronx nearly all of my community boards have severe maternal mortality rates much higher than the city's average high rates of black maternal mortality and morbidity is unfortunately a result of years of systemic racism discrimination and bias in the healthcare industry that has contributed to the mistreatment and mishandling of Black birthing individuals and patients, and it's unacceptable.
5: Gibson says too many of our women, sisters, and mothers have died as a result of this public health crisis.
6: And I want to lift up the names of all of those women who we mourn their loss, who have died during childbirth, including Shaija Washington, who died, as well as Amber Isaac. Both women died during childbirth because of medical neglect. And we continue to pray for those families impacted. We cannot and should not wait for yet another preventable death before we take action. Black women and Black birthing individuals deserve access to quality, patient-centered, reproductive health care that is culturally sensitive and is attuned to their unique needs. Policymakers, health care professionals, all of our communities working together to improve Black women's maternal health by expanding access to health coverage and information on midwives and doulas. And there is data and research that proves a substantial increase in midwife delivered interventions could avert stillbirths, as well as unnecessary uh, medical interventions like epidurals and C-sections.
5: This new legislation removes information barriers about midwives and doulas and has the potential to save lives. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. Back over to you, Paul.
0: Thanks, Linda. In more New York City Council news, as opponents decried it as a sellout, the City Council yesterday overwhelmingly voted to approve a rezoning for Governor's Island. The vote was 45 yes, 2 no, and 1 abstention. The no votes were Brad Lander and Inez Barron, and the abstention was Callum and Yeager. The de Blasio administration says the rezoning would pave the way for construction of a climate change center on the island off of Lower Manhattan's tip. But environmentalists oppose that a project say it's an excuse for commercial megatop. Hours to be built on the site. Magic, the Metro Area Governors Island Coalition was formed in November to fight the project that was dumped on the community members working on alternatives without notice last September, similar to another unpopular development project, the East Side Coastal Resiliency Plan. Magic co-founder Roger Manning says Mayor de Blasio's upzoning plans for Governors Island and other parts of the city are destroying New York's communities
1: to allow for increases in both building height building density of development and usage
0: what is governor's island and how does this apply to governor's island
1: well governor's island is an island right in the middle of new york harbor that's used by all new york city residents it has a historic district it has actually a national monuments there uh, areas with for the forts and public parkland and educational facilities and space for the arts and environmental projects The north part of the island is a historic district, so that they can't really do too much differently there, but the South Island has a lot more space. They created some parkland there and set aside some development zones where they were going to put some stuff in there that helped bring in income for the island. People understood that. This has been going on for a number of years, but then... Now, the proposal is three times the uh, height and density of what people expected, and it's going to box into parklands and bring shadows. Governors Island is a rare open space that has no high-rises. You can see the, the horizon. You know, it's in the middle of the harbor. It just has a lot of openness to it, and they're just going to box it in with the high-rise commercial development. MAGIC, the group I'm part of, just formed in November although the people in magic have been around for years and being around governor's island for years the current rezoning proposal was dropped on us in september it's been an ongoing thing with governor's island to develop what happens there and that kind of thing and it's been all kinds of great work done in governor's island by the trust for governor's island from the past it's a different trust now it gets reappointed with each mayor the current zoning just was certified in the late september of 2020 and boom. This sounds like a pattern. Disaster capitalism. I mean, it's being pushed through during a pandemic, during an election year. And as people pointed out, that there's an unprecedented number of upzonings all around the city. Magic is part of the Citywide People's Land Use Alliance, a newish group of people from all the way from the Bronx and Inwood to Gowanus and Queens and Manhattan, of course. It's just going on all over the place. And it's a pattern of essentially land grabs and privatizations. And um,
0: The city council person, Margaret Chin, what do these changes, these proposals she made, it seems like a compromise, a lad trying to give you guys something of what you wanted. Is that what happened?
1: She's not listening to us at all. What she did is she gave the city council an easy way out. They could vote for this and not look too bad because it was a compromise. We did talk with some of her staffers and they were really on the right track, but she didn't listen to them either. It, it's
0: what about the vote yesterday?
1: There was 48 council members voting, 45 voted yes, two voted no, and there was one abstention. So Now it goes to the mayor, who has five days to approve or disapprove, but essentially it's the mayor's plan, so the mayor will rubber stamp it. And then uh, Magic and the community will be weighing our options, and it's not over yet. And when the city council and mayor approve something, that's a tough nut to crack after that. The so trust for Governor's Island chair, Alicia Glenn, former Goldman Sachs, Uh, refers to governor's island as quote a nice piece of real estate that's what this is all about and we're going to stop it somehow it's a piece of the puzzle of this battle where what really benefits the community is being squashed by development and big real estate people should vote for city council members who are going to stick up for us
0: roger manning is co-founder of magic the metro area governor's island coalition And finally, seals in the tri-state area are facing their own pandemic struggles. Here's Aaron Tremper on how local seals are on the mend.
6: He is a small seal pup. Very vocal. Probably only about four
7: months. That is the sound of Billy Joel the gray seal growling. Last month, the New York Marine Rescue Center held its first public seal release in over two years. The release of the four-month-old gray seal Billy Joel and harbor seal Joan Jett marked a new high for local seals facing a tough year. The start of the pandemic brought in the highest number of calls related to people harassing seals in a decade. Job layoffs and closed schools last spring meant more people on the beaches.
3: So people were getting way too close to the animals. People were offering water and food. Um, We also had people drag animals back into the water because the assumption was that they needed to be in the water to live.
7: Maxine Montello is the rescue director for the center. She says this year has been better. Fewer people on the beaches this spring means fewer harassment calls. Seals flocking to the tri-state area from northern waters often come with a slew of other issues unrelated to the pandemic. Local rehabilitation centers treat everything from pneumonia and entanglements to dehydration and feeding issues. And the type of treatment often depends on the species of seal in need. Take harp seals, an Arctic ice-loving species that lives most of its life on the ice. Like other seals, harp seals don't drink water directly. Instead, they get their fluids from fish or by eating snow. Harp seals finding themselves on a beach, though, may take drastic measures.
3: This animal naturally would eat snow and ice to stay hydrated in, in addition to its um, fish. And unfortunately, we'll start eating sand here, um, which causes a lot of issues, renal failure, kidney functions, um, and will severely make them dehydrated. Bob
7: Shulkoff of the Marine Mammal Stranding Center often finds himself having to go back to basics with the seals he receives. He says many of the seals coming to the area are pups that have just been weaned off their mother's milk. Helping these pups learn to eat solid food usually involves a little tough love.
4: That usually means sitting on them and forcing whole food down the throat until the little light comes on their head saying, oh, what's going in my mouth? Makes my stomach
0: feel good. And then they start eating.
7: Montello finds that the older seals that are underweight often need a sneakier tactic.
3: We're not feeding them by hand here. We're kind of throwing fish into the tank from a hidden wall so they don't see us.
7: Seals are clever marine mammals that can quickly learn to associate humans with food. This may become a problem as more run-ins between SEALs and people occur. Glenn DiResto, a Rockaway business owner, has seen SEALs hauling themselves out quite close to local communities.
4: Yeah, they come into Jamaica Bay and they even come onto, my buddy has a restaurant, and they even come onto the dock um, by his restaurant.
7: An increase in SEALs coming to New York and New Jersey means more people are running into SEALs on the beach. So what should you do if you see an injured SEAL? Call your local 24-hour Marine Life Rescue hotline or the police and keep your distance. Even if you're well-meaning, you must keep 100 feet from SEALs. Those who don't could face a fine of up to $100,000 and one year of prison time. Aaron Tremper, WBAI News, New York.
0: Thanks, Aaron. And that's some of the news for Friday, May 28th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry and Aaron Tremper, our engineers, Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening and have a great Memorial Day weekend.